0: Thanks for joining us for our preaching podcast for the Point Church, Alberta campus. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. We pray that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now, join me as we get to the point. Hebrews chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of the hardback black Bibles. Say that five times fast under the chairs in front of you, and you're going to want to turn to page 1001. Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Hebrews. And over the next few months, and yes, I did just say months, we're going to be walking through this book. And as we do, my hope and my prayer will be that you begin to see that the main thrust of the book of Hebrews is focused squarely on the supremacy of Christ. Hebrews is a book that argues over and over and over again that Jesus is better He's better than angels. He's better than Moses and the prophets. He's better than the old temple rituals. Jesus is better. He's better than all these people and things. In fact, that's the title of our sermon series for you. Jesus is better than. And as we walk through each chapter, what you're going to see is that Jesus is better than all the things that might come at us. And I'm really excited about this series because the book of Hebrews is an exceptional book. We're going to feast on so much meat. I truly believe that it's going to help us to grow as disciples of Jesus as we study through it. But as we begin to study the book, it's helpful, as you know, to to know a little bit about the background. And unlike most of the other epistles, the letters of the New Testament that we have, we don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is. We, We just don't know who wrote it. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired the human author, but the truth of the matter is we don't know who that human was. Over the years, there have been a lot of arguments on who it could be. For many years, it was thought that it might be the Apostle Paul who had written it. But some of the um, ways that he make, the author of Hebrews makes his arguments, some stylistic differences, if you will, um, cause a lot of people to doubt that it was Paul that wrote it. Other proposed authors have included Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and Acts, Barnabas, Apollos, Clement of Rome, who was one of the very early church fathers. Some have even suggested that Priscilla and Aquila, the, the, the couple in the book of Acts that we see, were the authors. The, the fact is, we don't know who wrote it. The textual evidence within the book leads most scholars to, to agree that while we don't know who that person was, it was most certainly a Greek-speaking Jew who had become a Christian through the ministry of one of the apostles. At the same time, because we don't know who wrote it, it also becomes a little bit more difficult to know the exact time that it was written. Based on some of the clues in the text concerning persecution, uh, the identity of Timothy, most assume that that is Paul's co-worker in the ministry, some references to temple worship and when the temple was destroyed, combined with some extra biblical writings that we do have a firm date of in the early 90s A.D., most scholars tend to agree because of all of that that this book was written no later than 70 A.D., They also seem to agree that the book was written to Jews who, like the author, had become Christians. They're they're Jewish Christians who either lived in Palestine or, more likely, in Rome. Now, why does all that matter? That matters because what we're seeing here, what we'll be studying, is an epistle that was written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses of Jesus and his ministry. The, the things written in this letter, they were verifiable. The people who who read this letter for the first time, we don't know the author, but they almost certainly did know who that author was. But more than that, they also knew the people who had seen Jesus for themselves. All the claims that are made in this book were verifiable. You could go and talk to the people who saw it happen. We're studying a book that has been handed down for nearly 2,000 years. And throughout those 2,000 years, it has helped many people to become better followers of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, with that background, that context in mind, let's dive in. And as we dive into Hebrews chapter 1, I've got really just two big points for you. I'm sorry Meg was teasing me earlier uh, because it's not three a litter of points. I'm going to give them to you right at the beginning. Two big points that I want you to consider as we study the book of Hebrews and particularly as we study chapter 1 today. And the first is this. We serve a God who has spoken to us. He's spoken to us through his word. He's spoken to us through the prophets. He's spoken to us through angels. He's spoken to us through his son. But make no mistake here, God has spoken to us. That's the first big takeaway from chapter one. The second is this. Jesus is better than all the other messengers that God used. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better. Those are our two big points. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power." After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wins. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun he says, "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, our God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain.'" They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin to study this book, where where we don't really know that much about who wrote it, when it was written, where it went. We, We have ideas, but we don't know with certainty. What we do know with certainty is that you inspired this book. What we do know with certainty is that for thousands of years, this book has spoken to your people to help them to be better followers of Jesus. So today, God, we ask that you would do that for us. That you would open our ears to hear, our minds to receive, our hearts to, to really internalize and comprehend your word to us. That we would be encouraged to follow you better, knowing that you are better. God, if there's somebody today who who is here, who's hearing my words today and they haven't come to the point of surrender, they haven't repented of their sin, they haven't accepted you as the Lord of your life, finding the freedom that is available in you, today, God, we ask that that be the thing that happens for them, that they would find a new hope in you, a freedom in you that's unlike anything they've ever found before. Be at work today. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. On Christmas Eve in 2009, a buddy of mine and I launched from the front end of the USS Nimitz, loaded with thousands of pounds of precision-guided ordnance destined for a combat mission in Afghanistan. As we climbed up over the North Arabian Sea, we did the standard radio checks that were required. In fact, I was the one that was doing them. We have multiple levels of encrypted radios that are required to go into combat so the enemy can't listen in on what we're talking about, and all of those checks went just fine. As we climbed up through 10,000 feet, I conducted our climb-out checks. Really, that's just checking to make sure cockpit pressurization is where it's supposed to be, that our fuel is transferring from our external fuel tanks into the aircraft itself, and a few of the avionics settings have been set for the transit up into Afghanistan. And normally what happens when you do these checks is that the weapon systems officer, that's me, would, would run the checks and the pilot would respond, but this time the pilot said nothing. I didn't hear a peep out of him. It didn't take me long after that to figure out that my pilot couldn't hear me, he couldn't hear the radios, and he couldn't talk to anyone. So I dropped my mask and over the noise of the jet, I yelled up to the front cockpit telling him to turn back to the ship. I called the ship on the radio and told them to launch the spare fighter to go into Afghanistan because my pilot couldn't talk to anybody. We had to return to the ship because we couldn't communicate. Every mission in life, every single one, whether it's a military mission in combat or our mission as Christians requires one common thing, and that's communication. It's no different for us. If we want to know and serve God, if we want to be on his mission, then the first thing that must happen is that God must communicate with us. He must make himself known. We cannot know God by any other means. He must communicate with us. And that truth is what makes the opening of Hebrews chapter 1 so incredibly beautiful. In verse 1, the author writes, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke. And I have to stop right there and just stand in awe of that. God spoke. Because here's the thing. Sometimes I think we get so wrapped up in the idea of God that we forget that God is not an idea. God is a person. He's a full person. And he chose to speak to us. He didn't have to. Have you you ever considered that? God didn't have to speak to us, but he did. He revealed himself to us. This is a foundational truth. And it's not just foundational to the book of Hebrews. It's foundational to your life as a Christian. We serve a God who has spoken to us. We didn't make up God. He's not an idea. He's a person who has revealed himself to us. Which is why the author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Now on the surface, what we're seeing there is is a reference of God's self-revelation in what we would know as the Old Testament. But have you ever paused to consider the many ways that God has spoken to us? How God has spoken to us in his word? When we look at the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we see that God has spoken to us in just about every way imaginable. Like, think about it. Do you like like narrative dramas? If you like reading narrative dramas, read Genesis, read Exodus, Judges, Samuels, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I could go on. Do you have a mind for exacting detail? Read Numbers or, or Leviticus. Do you like catchy sayings? read Proverbs. Tragedy, Ruth. Redemption, Job. Job is, sorry, Job is, is our tragedy. Redemption is Ruth and Esther. Do you like poetry? Read the Psalms. Do you like romance? Read Song of Solomon. Not you kids. Wait a few years, then you can read it, okay? The, you get the idea. We serve a God who has spoken to us in various ways. And I believe that all the ways that God has spoken to us just show us the beauty of who he is. They give us a better, bigger picture of who God is. God is not a one-dimensional idea. He is a full and robust personal being, and the ways he has revealed himself to us demonstrate that. So God used all these various ways to speak to us by men, prophets, men used by God to communicate God's message to us. Over time, he gradually revealed more and more of who he is to us until the perfect messenger came. And verse 2 says, but in these last days. And I want you to notice that those last days there is not a reference to the end of time, but to the time where all of the promises of the prophets will be fulfilled. A time where revelation will be complete. That's what's meant by these last days there in verse 2. So it says, But in these last days, where the promises of the prophets will be fulfilled, he has spoken to us by his Son. Before God used men, they were were servants. But now, for the ultimate, complete word that he has for us, he has chosen his Son to be his messenger. And, And what we see in the text following are seven facts, seven realities about the Son that show us his supremacy His greatness and show us why the revelation given in him is the best and most complete revelation that God could ever give to us. In the second half of verse 2, the author of Hebrews says that the son has been appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Can you feel the weight of this description right there? The the beauty of the son, the power he has as God's agent, God's voice to speak, to reveal God to us. What we're seeing here in these verses is the beginning of the second big takeaway for chapter 1. And that second big takeaway she'll be on the screens right there. Jesus is better than all the other messengers. These seven truths, these seven statements about him work to show us that. It says he's the heir of all things. The, the, the messianic prophecies that came up that were about the Christ, they always talked about how the, the Messiah was going to be the, the heir of all nations. But here it goes beyond that. Here it's saying that he will be the heir of all things. Yes, all the nations, but also the universe. Also heaven, all, all of creation is his. Here we see the, heir is the, the, or the son is the heir of all things. And he's also the one through whom God created the world. The son is the agent through which creation occurred. This is simply a claim being reiterated that we saw in the gospel of John, in John 1, 3, where it said that through him, or all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The sun is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all things, but he's also the radiance of the glory of God, which is just another way of saying that he exposes, that he shines out God's glory onto the earth. That's what it's saying right there. It's talking about his deity. But more than just shining out God's glory, it says that he's the exact imprint of his nature. That word that's translated imprint in the Greek there is character, which is where we get the English word character. And it's only used right here in the Bible, this one place. That's the only place we see that Greek word. The word was connected with the idea of of an engraved mark, specifically with a coin being stamped. You see, when an engraver stamps a coin with a stamp, he gets the exact image of the stamp on the coin. What, What this is telling us is that the sun is the exact image of God. When you look at the sun... When you look at Jesus, you see God, which is a claim that Jesus made about himself. John 14, 9, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is a descriptor of the Son, saying that he is God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus is actually God. Well, that's what this says. This is saying right here, he is God. And because the Son is God, because Jesus is a God, it makes sense that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, don't let that weird phrase confuse you. The word of his power is just a, another way of saying his enabling word, his powerful word. The idea is this, Jesus speaks and the universe obeys. Okay, that's, that's the idea here. But even though Jesus is the Son, the Son is God, and he rules over and created and commands the universe, the author of Hebrews also tells us that he made purification for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This messenger, this this one who, through both his words and his life, spoke as God's ultimate and complete revelation to us, he stepped into history and fixed our sin problem. And having conquered sin and death, he then sat down at the right hand of God. He's enthroned in heaven. Do you see it now? As we've taken apart each of these descriptors of him, are you seeing the picture that the author of Hebrews is painting of the Son? He's no ordinary messenger Thousands of years of Israel's history of prophets and priests being used by God, men of God. They were good men who loved the Lord, they were his mouthpiece, and God used them to speak. But none of them, not one of them, was on the same level as the Son. Jesus is better. None of them had the power or the authority or the ability to create, to command, to rule the universe. None of them had the power or authority to provide purification for sin and then sit down enthroned in heaven. But Jesus did. You see, Jesus is better than these prophets who had come before him. Are you with me on this? He's better. But it's not just the prophets Remember, I told you that the second takeaway for today is that Jesus is better than all the other messengers that God had used. And what we're seeing in the remainder of the chapter is that while Jesus was a better messenger than the prophets, he's also a better messenger than the angels. So the statement in verse 3 continues into verse 4. We read that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then verse 4 tells us, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And when we read that, we've got to stop for just a second. And if I can just lay my cards on the table, I spent like two days on that one verse because that's confusing. Because if I read that right on first reading, what that verse is saying is that there was a point in time where Jesus was not superior to angels. And the problem with that is what we read in verses two and three. So it can't be saying that. And if that's the case, what is it telling us? It's a confusing verse. Sometimes we're going to open up our Bibles, we're going to read, and it's going to be confusing, and that's where we may need to dig deep. That's where context can help. That's why I give you guys the context every time we start a new book of the Bible, because that will help us. If we want to understand what is going on in verse 4, then we need to understand two things about the original audience of this letter. The first thing for them that we need to understand if we want to understand verse 4, is that for that original audience, a name was more than just a means of distinguishing a person. Names were intended to describe their nature, they, they said something about who they were. So, in that day and age, you know, if, if I had been there, my name might not be Josh. My name might be pastor, it, it might be teacher, it might be short, bald goat herder. You know, it, it, it would have said something about who I am as a person. A name was more than just a name. It was a statement of identity. And the second thing we need to understand is how the role of angels fit into the, the life and faith of these Jewish Christians. Because here's the thing. When we think about angels, if we're being completely honest, we think about Christmas decorations, right? Right? We think about celestial beings sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, but the problem with that is that's just not what the Bible says about angels. Our view compared to that early audience of angels is much lower than theirs was. You see, for them, angels are mighty warriors. Angels are the very mouthpiece of God as he speaks to his people. Angels were the ones who revealed the law to Moses. The angels brought the law from God, gave it to Moses. Moses gives them the law, and the law is what was supposed to save them. For them, angels were far more important than we place on them. That's that's how they viewed it. And, And what that meant is that for their order of importance, you had God, then you had angels, then prophets, then priests, God, angels, prophets, priests. What's the problem with that? Somebody important is missing. There's no position for Jesus right there. So what verse four is explaining is that in Jesus's exaltation, his name, and that name here is son. It's more like his title. We get that from verse five in in a second. His name son is revealed to all creation in a new light where everyone will recognize that it's higher and better than that of angels. If, and, and, and if everyone recognizes that his name is higher and better than angels, they'll recognize that his position is higher and better than angels. That's what verse 4 is showing us. It's showing us that Jesus, he, he's been exalted, and as he's been exalted, he's being revealed to all creation in a new light. His name and authority and power That he had for all eternity, for for all of history past, for all of the present, for all of the future is clearly displayed for everyone to see. There's a reordering of priorities that's going on there in verse 4. And so what we'll see in the rest of the chapter, in in verses 5 through 14, the author is going to work out this idea that Jesus is better than angels. Take a look, starting at verse 5, the author says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. These two verses cite three Old Testament uh, texts that declare the position of authority that the coming Messiah will have. The first one's from Psalm 2, 7. But that same declaration is heard at Jesus' baptism. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that as Jesus was raised up out of the water, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The second comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet Nathan conveyed God's promise to David that God would establish David's throne and that one of David's heirs would reign on that throne for all eternity, And the third one comes from Psalm 97.7. And if you were to look at Psalm 97.7 in your English translation, it would look a little bit different, and that's because this quote comes from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was used by the author as he wrote this letter. And what he's showing us here, the whole point of these three Old Testament texts, is to prove that God has already said and he's already demonstrated that the son is superior to angels. The author is asking, when did God ever call an angel his son? He hasn't. He hasn't. The son has always been superior to angels. That's the point. But God's word does address the role of angels which is why verse 7 says of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire This is citing Psalm 104:4 And what the author is trying to demonstrate is that angels receive their position and their assignments directly from God God commands angels and they obey That's what's meant by him saying he makes his angels And the reference to winds and flames of fire is meant to show the kind of passing, fleeting nature of angels. They're not eternal beings in the way that the sun is an eternal being. And we know that's the case because the contrast immediately in the next verse goes back to the sun. Look back to to verse eight with me. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hand till they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. These two quotes come from Psalm 45, verses six. and seven in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. But do you see how they're proclaiming the Son's deity and his eternality? The Son is forever. That's what this is showing us. They're, they're working to show us that the Son is God, eternally God. The, the whole point is meant to be a contrast to that fleeting and temporary nature of angels who obey God. They're not God, they're not eternal like He is which is why the final scripture the author uses is posed as a question. Verse 13, he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now, the obvious answer to that question is none. God hasn't said that to any of his angels, right? He said that to the Son, but that's why he asks the question that way. You see, this first verse of Psalm 110 is pointing to the Son. In fact, it's either quoted directly or referenced 12 separate times in the New Testament. And every single time we see Psalm 110, 1 referenced, it's pointing directly at Jesus. Jesus is the Son. He is God. He is eternal. And it's yet another statement of his role as God. Angels, they're they're something else entirely. They're not even on the same level. And that's how chapter one ends. Verse 14, the author asks, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are simple servants of God. They're there to serve They're there to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are there for God's service for your good. The British theologian Frederick Bruce said that the most exalted angels are those whose privilege it is to stand in the presence of God. But none of them has ever been invited to sit before him, still less to sit in the place of unique honor at his right hand. All of them, the highest angels as well as the lowest, Are but servants of God, ministering spirits. Their service is performed for the benefit of a favored class of human beings, the heirs of salvation. The whole point that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us here today is that as good as angels are, and they are good, they are powerful, they are used by God, as good as angels are, Jesus is better. That's what he's trying to get across. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. Jesus is better than all the other messengers that God has used. And with that in mind, the question we need to ask is why is that important? Why does it matter? Up until this point, I've just been kind of going through the text and and telling you what it says. Now the question is why do we care? Why do we need to know that Jesus is a better messenger? The answer, I think, is that with a better messenger, we get a better message. Amen? You with me on this? With a better messenger, we get a better message. You see, the prophets and the angels could only carry the message that God had given them, but Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, he was the message. The the prophets and angels conveyed God's word using words. They they spoke as God's mouthpiece, but Jesus, God incarnate, God who has put on flesh, he revealed himself to us in a completely different way. Yes, he used words. Of course he did. But more than that, he acted. He stepped down from heaven. He left the beauty and the majesty of the presence of the Father in order to enter into a broken world. And even though he's God, he willingly subjected himself to the pain and the brokenness of this world. He lived in this world for 33 years. He experienced suffering, he experienced hunger and thirst, he experienced loss, sadness, betrayal, even death. And he did all of that in order to reconcile sinners to himself. In his letter to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the message that Jesus brought right there. It's the message of the gospel. It's the bad news that we are sinners and our sin has separated us from God. It's the worst news that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to fix our sin problem. We can't make it right, but it's the good news that Jesus left the glory of the Father. He stepped down and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. And if we'll place our faith and our hope in him, if we'll repent of our sin, he gives us life. He fixes our sin problem. And it's the even better news that when he does that, we are eternally reconciled to God. We get to spend all of eternity with Jesus, with God in heaven. That's the message that Jesus brought. It's the message that only he could bring. It's the best message that could be brought. It's a message of hope. It's a message of peace. It's a message worth proclaiming, which is why Jesus is better than every other messenger that God ever used.